61 District 6, stage 1 shooting. Skimmer Wayne, near Lakeland, Charles, 478 Tango. 378-1654. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Sevalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, greetings and salutations, everyone. It's time to go Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Sevalero. And I got to say, man, we got a really good show coming to you. And I think we have a really good show every week. And from the people that are out there, I want to thank you for all the comments that we get. And you really kind of give us that pat on the back. And, uh, you know, the, I just think it's just Kelly and I on the show. But obviously, people want to listen to our ideas. People want to listen to our comments. But let's not delay any further. Because here's the guy you came really to listen to is Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how you doing? I'm, I'm great, man. I haven't slept well the last two days. My dog has declared jihad on the local armadillo population. Really? <laughs> yes. Um, it, you look at Shine in a, in a new light. He's not the big, white, fluffy, lovable puppy. Uh, when you notice that he can crack an armadillo like a taco shell, it's just it's pretty horrific sounding, man. So he's got he's to watch that, though, because those armadillos can be pretty tough, though, right? They, they, get, they get pretty big, don't they? I mean, they can yeah, get like 30 was, pounds or something, can't they? Yeah, these, these two probably weighed, they were full-grown armadillos. They probably weighed 15 pounds apiece, and that sounds like World War III under your house if your dog is chasing an, an armadillo around, bumping against the floor joists and the, and the uh, support beams and stuff. And But, uh, yeah, he, he killed one night before last, and then last night Nancy woke me up at, 11 o'clock screaming at the dogs and you know and i go outside with my flashlight and, and a pistol uh to uh to finish off this poor armadillo and before i could i could put the thing out of its misery shine did it for me he, he hauled it off in the hedge you can just hear it it's like you know someone was cracking a taco shell crunch Jesus, crunch crunch Jesus. oh my god what happened to my sweet puppy? This this thing's a polar bear out here. He's already tasted blood, so he's going after them armadillos. And that's a dog you need to get a Christmas present for. We talked about that last year, man. That's but, uh, right. He is he is the fierce defender of house and home from those evil armored possums. That's right. And he does have his own Facebook page. So this go ahead and check out Shiner Bach and become a fan. He's got some interesting <laughs> things to say. I don't know how he types with them paws, but uh, he certainly has some interesting things to say. But uh, he's a smart dog time to talk about the news so let's go and get our first news story what do we got man there's a uh, there's a story that came up from the 19th out of uh, minnesota maplewood minnesota six personnel from the maplewood fire department are on leave after granting the request of a woman's husband uh, and her medical power of attorney to halt a resuscitation these people were uh, this patient was uh, um, at a uh, minnesota uh, maplewood nursing home uh, in maplewood minnesota and uh Linda Sandhigh, I presume her name is, is uh, pronounced, uh, had late end-stage Parkinson's, uh, very poor quality of life. She had uh, empowered her husband officially to make medical, medical decisions for her, but she did not have a DNR in place. And uh, her son was present. She vomited and stopped breathing, um, went into cardiac arrest. The nursing home personnel started CPR on her. And then when the paramedics arrived, they continued CPR intubated her and and you had a patient with a pulse had a rosc and at this point the the patient's spouse uh decided that he did not want anything further done and those were not her wishes to be resuscitated so they wheeled her back inside and uh let her expire 
there at the nursing home and got in a bit of trouble for it. Uh, I don't know. What do you, what do you think about this, man? I, I, I would hate to be put in that position, but I'm not quite sure I would have handled it that way. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one. I mean, and certainly we're not there on the scene, and, and to play armchair card, quarterback is not the uh, position to take. But, you know, you and I, we conduct this show like it's two paramedics sitting in a truck, and we're talking about mm-hmm. the day's news and what we, we do. I got to tell you, I, I don't know that I would have taken this route as well. I mean, I've had challenges as an EMS chief as well with uh, employees making these decisions, and and I look at it as a terminable offense. I mean, we have to remember that we operate under our medical director's protocols, and we don't have the right to say, okay, I'm going to respect your wishes. You know, we we live by the, the, the code that we need to see the DNR. Just because they say that there's a DNR, uh, we got to see the DNR. In this case, we have someone who's the, the power of attorney, but is it the general power of attorney? Is it a medical power of attorney? Is it a financial power of attorney? And, and I think the, the heart was right. I, I think you want to be able to do what's right for that patient mm-hmm. and what's right for that family. But we don't have the right to make that decision. We've got to get on the phone with medical control and say, this is what we've got. And we've got to take that out of our hands, and we've got to put that into the people who, who we operate under their medical licenses. And I think that that's where the challenge comes into. What I don't understand is, why is it going to this uh, level now? I mean, you, you've got the police department who is now saying, we've got to do an internal investigation. We've got to conduct an investigation. In theory, can they come back and say that, that that uh, you know that they did harm to this patient because they had a patient with a pulse and they didn't uh, uh, you know uh, follow through and take the patient to the hospital. Man, I don't know. I mean, this is a big conundrum, and I don't really know uh, where it's going to go. I think that was rather a, a uh, low class move on the on the part of the nursing home because apparently it was the nursing home uh, staff that initiated the criminal complaint and they notified law enforcement and. Uh, and, and tried to make this into a criminal matter. To my way of thinking, this is, you know, this is not a, uh, should not be a criminal matter. Um, whether the investigation uh, indicates otherwise remains to be seen. But uh, certainly, probably a terminatable offense, or, or at the very least, uh, these guys probably need to be disciplined, not for the decision they made, but for the way they went about handling it. Um, uh, they they kind of went off the reservation with this. But, is it a criminal offense? I, I hardly think so. And, and you'd have to think that a nursing home staff who is familiar with the patient, knew her quality of life, knew that she'd been a, a Parkinson's patient for 21 years and was terminal and bedbound, and that her husband, uh, she had indicated to her husband that she did not want extreme measures taken, uh, and uh, her husband was supposedly carrying out her wishes by stopping them, you know, yeah, that may not be the way you wanted the, the medics to handle it when you called 911, but do you call the cops on them? Really? <laughs> that just... Now, and also, if they knew that, then who was... Why did this lady not have a DNR in place? Yeah, I was if just thinking that. those were her wishes, yeah. why did she not have an advanced directive? Did no one who was familiar with the formulation of advanced directives, no ombudsman or or social worker or staffer at this nursing home say, well, if you don't want this done, we need some paperwork. Right. 
And if the, um, if the husband did have a general power of attorney, then that is something that's going, general covers everything. You know, yeah. you could get a power of attorney for medical decisions, for financial decisions. General is going to kind of cover everything. And, and depending on what they had, he, he did have the right to, to put that advance directive in place. Uh, but again, I'm with you as to uh, why I didn't do that. Now, I didn't know it was the nursing home that made the complaint. I yeah, thought I it was. In the, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I thought that was coming from the actual, uh, um, uh, from the family who, you know, no. was either given kudos or something like that. And then they said, cause I know, you know, when you read the article, the son is very appreciative that the husband yeah. is very appreciative that they allowed this woman to, uh, you know, to, to, to go the way she wanted to go and, and not be left as they say in a vegetative state. Yeah. But again, I think one of the things that we've got to remember here is that do we have the authority, the power, the, the ability to say, all right, let's make this decision for you. And I think sometimes, Kelly, we get hung up in, in and I don't want to say the ego, but we get hung up in the in the uh, you know the heat of the matter, mm-hmm. and um, you know we make these decisions on our own merits, and and we got to realize that we can't do that. I, I can't fault the fire chief and the and the staffers who who were suspended um, for their good intentions, but the the road to hell is paved with the good intentions. Um, you know, I, I've been in their situation. Not quite this bad, but I've been in a situation where you had a patient who was terminal, who, who had very poor quality or no quality of life, uh, and, and family members did not want extreme measures done, and, and there was someone empowered uh, to make decisions on behalf of the patient, uh, and, and we honored their request not to perform a resuscitation, even though no DNR was in place. Now, most of the time, uh, we have called the police, or not called the police, excuse me, we have called medical control uh, to run that by them and say, Doc, they don't have a DNR in place, but this guy's got a power of attorney over his wife. She's got you know, terminal cancer. They just haven't had a chance to get a DNR in place yet, um, and they don't want us to do anything. Are you okay with that? And and every time I've, I've called, I've been gotten the official blessing. Uh, and yeah, but what's the, what's have the... I had to make the decision on my own Um that okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna honor this guy's wishes uh, because I couldn't get a doctor on the phone. Um, but it's a different story altogether when you get a pulse back, you've got ROSC, and you've got a living, breathing patient who then you decide to stop supporting, wheel back into the nursing home, and let expire. What? That, got, that's where they went off the rails. I think I want to give you two. I want to give you two questions. The first question is, you know, you talked about the doc. What, what do you think the medical liability is to the physician who says, "Okay, let them expire"? There was a case in Fort Worth, Texas, when I was down there, where a, and I don't know that there was a DNR in place, but this involved a physician who the patient was having agonal respirations, and only agonal respirations, and she decided to put her finger over the ET tube. And, and allow the patient to expire. And I can only tell you how that went. And I think, I believe at the time the doctor lost her license to practice, there was a, a legal case. And, and I apologize that I don't know the outcome of that. So I'm worried about the liability of that. But here's my second question to you, and, and maybe you can kind of piggyback off both of them. What if the, what if the, the husband said, you know what? I don't want my wife transported to the hospital. Put her back in her room. So even though she had an ROSC, and even though, does he have the right to say, I don't want this patient transported to the hospital, put her back inside? Um, 
I would say that he probably does have that right. The question is, is, is did the paramedics follow their procedures in covering themselves in, in that eventuality? Um, you mentioned it before. You, you get on the phone, you call a doc, and, and you put it in his hands and see what he says. And if it, that doesn't absolve you of any liability, at least it shares the burden with someone with uh, deeper pockets and more medical, uh, medical uh, certification than you do. Um, and from reading the story, it seems like that was pretty much what it was. They didn't want the, the woman taken to the hospital. Now, as far as, you know, um, as far as what the doctor's liability would be, I'm not so sure that that's not, uh, that we talk about that sort of thing and it's, and it's not EMS urban legend. Um, I've always been of the opinion that, that, uh, man, if, if I could talk to a personal injury lawyer, uh, I could, I could give him some fertile new ground to mine for, for potential clients by suing people for wrongful spinal immobilization and wrongful resuscitation because how many times have you seen at a hospital some uh, some patient with a uh, I've seen it many times in my career thankfully less recently and in, in, uh, less often in recent years uh, where a patient had a valid DNR in place but you had one family member who just couldn't accept the inevitable freaking out and rather than honor the patient's wishes on that DNR they honored the request of the family member and tried to resuscitate. I think that would be a heck of a lot easier to prove or a heck of a lot easier to get lawsuit out of, uh, a settlement out of, is if you were able to describe the patient's quality of life and what bed sores are like and what a feed, tube feeding is like and, and what the chronic care for a patient with, in a persistent vegetative state is like. Uh, and then say, this lady didn't want all of this to happen. She uh, she had her wishes known. She signed a document stating this, and these people willfully ignored that just because of someone who wasn't empowered to speak for the patient requested that they do otherwise. Uh, so my question would be, I'd flip it right back to you. What is the doctor's liability if he ignored a present DNR and decided to resuscitate anyway? Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, but I think that if there, again, if the family member is going to go ahead and say, I want this person to be resuscitated with a DNR in place, you know, that, that's, a, that's, I think, a, a patient care issue that we've got to be able to respect. Yeah. Um, well. You know, I know that the patient's wishes is this. You know, what if they came back and they said, well, they told me before they you know, went unconscious that they wish they never signed the DNR. I mean, there were just so many what ifs, what ifs, what ifs. Mm -hmm. But but I think going back to the question of the medical liability, I don't know that the doctor has the right to say, OK, let him expire there. You know, yeah. I, I think that there has to be some type, you know, what happens later on if the if the son comes back and says, uh, I didn't want that. I wanted my mother resuscitated and they call and my dad said no and they call a doc. I mean, it's just so many what ifs, man. But it would be cool to get one of our medical uh, legal experts on the show and mm -hmm. kind of pose this question to him. And, and maybe we'll see if we can do that in our next yeah. uh, show to, to yeah. kind of talk about that. But, man, this is one of those things that uh, I don't want to be on that side this of. But for you folks. Pandora's box. Well, you open up a Pandora's box to find a can of worms is what you do. So <laughs> one of the things that I think is important for everyone that's listening out there, when in doubt, man, get, you got to get on the phone with these docs and take it out of your hand. You know, we have, we have no ability to, to make these decisions in the field. And, and it's tough for these guys that are up there and, and tough for the guys that, uh, you know, now face uh, suspensions and, and hopefully nothing more. But, um, you know, again, wow, huh? I mean, I'd I hate to be in this is. position. 
Yeah, I, w- I would too. And, and there, but for the grace of God, because I, I have made that decision uh, without contacting medical control before. Um, after the fact, uh, my medical director thought it was uh, thought I made the appropriate decision. The family had no problem with it, um, but but uh, it still was an unpleasant feeling out there swinging in the breeze. Yeah, um, I bet. You know, and I think it's a, a it's a symptom of of how poorly we deal with end of life issues uh, in this country. Um, yeah, you know, we spend the vast majority of healthcare dollars on people in their last year or two of life. Uh, and, and Americans seem to think that more medicine equals better medicine, um, which is not true. And, uh, you know, I have my problems with the Affordable Care Act, but I had even more problems with with the Republican uh, and religious right uh, opposition to it with, with this whole garbage about death panels. You know, we need to have a meaningful conversation in this country about death and end-of-life issues and empower people to, to, to die with dignity. Uh, and as long as people are afraid of having that conversation, you're probably going to run into more calls like this and, right. and, and more stories like this. Yeah, I think this goes to the, the fear of death, man. I mean, we, we don't talk about death. We don't handle death very well as a society. And uh, But i got to tell you, I mean, this is a tough call, and we're going to be interested to follow yep. this along. And uh, so with that, I think let's go ahead and transition to the clinical issue. And I think we've got a really good one to chat mm-hmm. about. And I'm not going to be surprised if you and I take different stance on this. But I'm going to give you the opportunity to set it up. And uh, let's see what our listeners have to say about it. Our clinical issue comes from a story out of uh, um, from the 17th out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, several Charlotte paramedics turned to uh, Channel, 9's, Channel 9 News in Charlotte, speaking under the condition of anonymity and, and having their faces and voices disguised because they are having issue with a policy from their employer, Medic, that incentivizes uh, via a point system keeping their time on task, uh, time on task numbers down. They want them to keep less than 70 minutes from uh, time on task. In other words, from time to dispatch to time to patient uh, transfer at the hospital, they want a total turnaround of 70 minutes or less. And if you're doing it in, in less than 60 uh, you get bonus points for that that, that apply toward your your uh, your performance evaluation and therefore your your yearly pay raises. And the medics have an issue with that. And they say, look, this is uh, you know, this is incentivizing rushed and sloppy care, and we think it puts patients at risk. Um, and you know where I'm going with this. I I kind of agree with the medics. Uh, now. I'm sure you're going to spout some of that supervisor stuff, so go ahead and, and, and tell me why I'm wrong. Well, first off, I mean, I think for the people that are out there that don't that don't deal with the total task time, time on task, whatever you want to call it, as, as Kelly kind of mentioned, there's a lot of components that go into that. And, and a lot of times it starts with the pickup of the phone, or it starts with the first keystroke, uh, then, you know, they, they kind of keep time on everything. So when you think about these, these high-performance EMS systems, when you think about system status management, all the calls are figured to be one hour in time frame. Medic gives them a 70-minute time frame. And, but that includes uh, dispatch time, that includes uh, in route to the call, that includes total scene time, it includes the uh, transport time to the hospital, your drop-off time, and then when you finally get back into service. That should be no more than 60 minutes, usually 70 minutes in the case that we're talking about here at Medic. 
Now, one of the things that I will say is I am taking the side of not only as a, as a leader in EMS, not only as a chief of EMS, but also as a paramedic that worked in a high-performance EMS system that had a total task time before they went into, uh, when I left the street, of 46 minutes. And I want to go ahead and give a shout-out to my partner, Sarah Chase, because she was with me, and, and we prided ourselves on having a total task time that was well under an hour. So now let's talk about the components of, of what they're trying to say. They're trying to say that, that patient care is inhibited or patient care is affected because you're incentivizing the fact of having a fast total task time or a quick uh, turnaround time. The only two things that you can really affect here are the time in the house and the time in the hospital. You can't really affect your response time because hopefully system status management has done the job that it needs to do and you're in a mm -hmm. position now that you're able to get to a call in 8 minutes and 59 seconds, 10 minutes and 59, whatever your priority 1, priority 2, priority 3 calls are, are, are lined out to be. But I'm going to say, what are you going to do in the house that you need to take that full 20 minutes or 25 minutes, whatever allotted there? You know, you walk into a house and you introduce yourself. You say, hi, my name is Chris. I'm a paramedic. This is Kelly. He's a paramedic. We're here to take care of you. Uh, what seems to be the problem today? Did you call with the intent of wanting to go to the hospital? Um, let's go ahead and see what's going on with you. How long do you really need to stay in the house to deliver patient care? If the patient says that they want to go to the hospital, is it your job to talk them out of the going to the hospital? Or is it your job to take them to the hospital? If my job is to take them to the hospital because they say they want to go, I can do everything I need to do on the stretcher, on the, in the ambulance, and I can get them to the hospital as quick as practical. So mm -hmm. from a paramedic standpoint who believed in the total task time, of less than an hour, and from an EMS chief who thinks that you don't need to be camping out in somebody's home and getting a place set for dinner or getting your mail there because you're there so long, <laughs> I, I don't see where the challenge is with this. Well, and I'm going to counter that as a paramedic who who has a. I'll be the I'll be the first to admit I'm I do not have the numbers of of my total task time in front of me. Uh, but that is something my employer tracks. Uh, that's part of our, our performance scores. It's not necessarily incentivized with a point system like they do it. And, and they, you have some outs uh, for the things that you cannot control. Um, but I, I'll take issue with your, with your assertion that, you know, uh, you can, uh, about camping out and, and getting your mail at the, the patient's, uh, uh, the house. Um, most of my patients, and this is this is true in just about any EMS system. Most of your patients that you come uh, arrive at their their house and, and take them to the hospital are in no way life threatening emergent. Okay, would you agree with that? Okay, seventy percent of the patients that we told probably right. don't need to go to the hospital, much less need to get there in an ambulance. I'm with you hundred um, percent. They're they're sick. Uh, they they have a legitimate problem, perhaps. Um, it's my job to get as thorough a history as I can and provide what stabilizing care I need. If stabilizing care is indeed needed, which quite often it isn't, um, so my history taking is more like a conversation. It's not a focused. Okay, come on, let's let's get this rolling. Let's, let's get on out of here. Uh, we got ten minutes. Uh, time's a wasting. Clock's a ticking. Uh, I sit down next to them, talk while my partner is doing physical assessment, and I have a conversation. And sometimes that conversation is going to last fifteen minutes or so. Um, to get all the information I need. Now, if the patient's good with uh, a good historian and can provide all the pertinent information I need right up front, great. If they're not, 
I'm I'm gleaning history and and the rest of the information I need from family members who may or may not be accompanying me to the hospital or following the patient up there. It paints a better patient picture. I get a more complete history and I can do more focused care for my patient um, if I elicit that history and it takes a little time to do. Now, having said that, I rarely have an instance, at least working in the city, I work in a, in a rural environment now, but up until a month ago, I was working in, in an urban environment and I rarely had to call that from time of dispatch to time of, of patient transfer and, and cleared back in service that I was over an hour, you know, probably hovers at around an hour and, and depending on the call, maybe well below that. But on average, let's call it 60 minutes. Um, so I think I, w I would uh, probably get uh, the five points under Medic's system. Um, however, my employer never doesn't penalize you for those long. Whoa, 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 uh, whoa, 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 whoa! They're not penalizing. What? They're not penalizing. Okay, all right. Okay, let's say my my employer does not incentivize the short scene times. Uh, what they do particularly pay attention to is short scene times for patients that that are categorized in in our triage system. Uh, as status one or status two. Okay, now if it is a status one or a status two patient, status one patients are the ones who are uh, have airway compromise, sig significant uh, altered mental status, uh, hemodynamic instability. They're your critical patients that need to get to the hospital quickly. They hold your feet to the fire over the 10-minute scene time. And if there's a variance, um, you can generally count on having to justify that variance. Now, it's not punitive when they go about uh, asking you about it. And, and there's a space in the PCR where you can, where you can you know, enter why you had an excessively long scene time. Uh, our status two patients are those evolving strokes and STEMIs and, and some minor traumas uh, like, uh, like proximal long bone fractures. Um, those patients, uh, they want less than 10 minutes on. But our status three and our status four patients was the vast majority of the people we transport. They don't really hold your feet to the fire. They want 10 minutes. But if it's 15, you're, you know, the, the, the QA police are not going to come rip your patch off and, and beat you about the head and shoulders. Um, uh, you may hear about it if it's consistently long. But right. uh, this, I can understand the medic's uh, concern here. Because, you know, quite frankly, we, we, we make a big deal about, uh, we make a big deal about um, scene times. And, and we've made that big deal about scene times for as long as the golden hour has been around and well-meaning educators extrapolated uh, the platinum 10 minutes from that, which was totally fictitious. We, we made that up because we thought it was a good idea, right. you know. Um, and, and for many years now, the platinum 10 minutes has had r very little to do with, with patient care and almost everything to do with unit hour utilization and, yeah, and but clearing your unit back into service. Let's go ahead and say that right out. Well, here's the um, thing, though, that I think is important. When you think about the platinum 10 minutes, what that patient needs, who's a level one trauma, is they don't need you. They need a this surgeon. They and, need I, to be, and I recognize right, that. Right. They, they need to be in the hospital as quick as practical so they can be in front of a trauma surgeon if that's what they need. But, but I want to go back to a little bit of what you said. You, know, you talked about your history taking and how you talk to a patient and extrapolate their history as to what's going on with them. Now, you say that could take 15 minutes. In that time frame, can't you say, do you want to go to the hospital? Oh, I've always I've, I've said if, that at the very beginning. If the answer is yes, why are you sitting there for 15 minutes? Why can't because, you take them to the hospital? Because sometimes it's hard to get. 
Oh, come on, Chris. Has it, has it been so long since you've been on a truck that you know that the sickest person in the house is always the heaviest and they're always in the back room? Yeah, but still, I mean. You know, and they're always on the fourth floor walk up and the elevator's busted or they've got steps with no railing and you got to break out the stair chair. It's not always that cut and dry. No, I'm with you. Sometimes I'm... access and, and egress take five minutes all by themselves. I agree 100%. Okay. But, it, but, but is the assessment, does the assessment have to take 15 to 20 minutes before you figure that out? I mean, no, it, here, here's the no, thing, here, here's the thing that I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but here's the thing that, that I look at. How many times does a paramedic sit in somebody's house to talk them out of going to the hospital? Yeah, that's an issue. That's an issue. But is that an issue that, that necessarily needs to be addressed via, via holding their feet to fire for time on task? But that's not Or is it something, because you can't tell me that, that medics that do that haven't developed a reputation with their peers I agree. for doing that I sort agree. of thing. So no one just, you know, all of a sudden Chris decides that he wants to be the guy who talks people out of going to the hospital. He's known by his peers. Now, now and his leaders. And addressing, the leaders. And, and his them, leaders. Right. Why are they not addressing that directly rather than punishing everyone because Chris likes to talk people out of going to the hospital? Right. Let me give you a leadership now, spin on this now. Okay. Okay, here's a leadership spin. So... There are people who come in to work, punch their card, get their ambulances ready, run their calls, take the trash out when they're done, put their equipment up, and they go home. Mm -hmm. And their transport times and their total task times are probably 70 minutes. To me, that's an average employee. That's what I hire you for. Yeah. I hire you to come in to do a job, get the job done, deliver patient care, and get them to the hospital. And come in, do your job, and go home. To me, that's a yeah. solid employee. That, that's, yeah. that's a middle-of-the-road employee. Mm -hmm. But now if you get a, a, an employee who comes in and teaches classes, who comes in and helps you do CQI, who has a total task time that's less than 60 minutes because they recognize the fact of this patient wants to go to the hospital, it's my job to take them to the hospital, I get them in my office in the back of that ambulance, I do whatever they need to do and, and take care of them that way. Why can't we give them a little bit more incentive, a little bit more higher pay raise? If you're gonna if you're gonna come in and do and do you know the the middle of the road, if you're gonna be the the, the paramedic who does what they what you you know whatever we ask you to do and, and nothing more than that, should I give you the same money that a high performer is getting? Um, I, I can't disagree with you there. But speaking with speaking from my from my grunts perspective, uh, uh, I can always. And it's probably a pie in the sky wish as well. I, I can always wish for one day in my perfect world when my legion of flying monkeys completes my quest for world domination, by God, things are going to be different. And things like merit raises are going to be based on clinical proficiency and customer service. If you are an awesome paramedic and you and an awesome paramedic being judged by your clinical skills, not how quickly you clear your stretcher, Okay. If you're an awesome paramedic and everyone knows it, you get paid more money. Um, I know that's not the way the world works now, and I know that the way that, especially in, in for-profit EMS, um, that that it's a business and you you have to operate your business efficiently. So what I try to do is I try to balance what my aspiration to be an awesome paramedic with what my employer regards as being an awesome employee, and right. sometimes they are different things. I know that in my yearly performance evaluations, I know what it's going to say the moment they have it. 
you know, they say, well, Kelly, we were giving X percent pay raise this year. You're going to get 1% below that because in all parameters, you were, you were judged superior or excellent. But man, you got to really work on that refusal rating. <laughs> you know? So I go ahead. If I could make a if I could make a rubber stamp, going, you know, I recognize that I get uh, obtain too many refusals. I will endeavor to do better in the future. Stamp. I would be done, and my sure. performance appraisals would would only take about five minutes. Let me give you let me give you this point. Okay. And here's something that I think we're talking about EMS in the days of old now. When we think about total task time, they're still in place in a lot of systems, and they're contractually obligated in a lot of these systems to meet this total task time. You know, there are EMS systems that if you don't respond to the life-threatening calls in 8 minutes and 59 seconds, 90% of the time, there's major, major fines that are being paid to these cities. But I or there, think there are fines being imposed, major fines being imposed per call. Right. Now, you know, in some contract. But I think that's going to go away now that we're in the days of community paramedicine. Th mm -hmm. This is exactly what we need to do. What we need to do is we need to spend more time with the patient. What we need to do is we need to ascertain if they need to go to the hospital or not. What we need to do is make the determination you really don't need to go to the hospital. Even if you want to go, you don't need to go, and I'm not going to take you. But in the days of total task time with system status management, with contractual obligations, I, I don't see the challenge with it, but Kelly, it looks like we got a clinical issue here. Yeah, yeah, we do. And 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 I'll I'll close with this. This little nugget stuck out to me. Medic Deputy Director uh, Jeff Keith said that uh, in the last quarter, uh, seventy percent of medic patients ranked their satisfaction as excellent, but only twenty percent of medic employees felt the same way. And, and that statistic, uh, you know. Keith said that the agency will address that with more outreach and better communication, but that kind of speaks to to medics who who are feeling rushed and feeling hurried and feeling unappreciated, and and that their hands are tied, not being able to do their their job. Now whether that is whether that is true or not uh, doesn't matter so much because these are your people, and if they feel rushed, they are rushed. That is, you know, perception is reality. If, if it is infecting their their uh, their job satisfaction, then then that's something that needs to be addressed. So, question one little uh, question to ponder as we as we wrap it up: How much of the soft things uh, that we don't often measure are being impacted by focus on things like time on task? I'll give you an example. Go back to your go back uh, open a, a PCR and and uh, when we open our PCRs, it opens up previous. Uh, if the patient's been transported within the last 90 days, we can pull a lot of the demographic uh, information from previous run reports. Pull those up and see how much of the medical history and the patient's medications uh, are actually entered in there. And most of the time, you pull those up and the patient will not have their medications in there or the medical history and the MAR will be incomplete. Um, and that's directly related to people being in a hurry. They, they get them in the truck. They, for, they don't get the medications. They don't get a complete and thorough past medical history. Uh, and that's reflected in, in, in their documentation. Um, why? My opinion is it's because we spend too much, uh, put too much emphasis on uh, turning the stretcher quickly. So, yeah, we got a clinical issue, man. But we want to hear, hear what the rest of our listeners have to say about it. So y'all email us at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself and co-host Chris Cibolero, who is wrong and I am right, 
thanks for tuning in oh, to Inside Nice, nice, nice little thing to go out on. Last, hey, I always get the last word. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you guys next week.